singing like you know it and mean it. I want to ask you to turn again to the book of Romans this morning, chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. We're going to be considering the doxology that concludes this chapter that starts in verse 33, but I want to read the 32nd verse to introduce our reading as we begin. So Romans 11 and verse 32. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief, that He might have mercy upon all. O the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments, and His ways past finding out! For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been His counselor? Or who hath first given to Him, and it shall be recompensed unto Him again? For of Him, and through Him, and to Him, are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Well, let us in our own hearts say Amen and trust God again to grant His blessing to the public reading of His Word. I will ask you to pause again with me and let's unite our hearts in prayer as we consider the Word together today. Gracious Heavenly Father, Again, we believe it a truth we've sung that we have more cause than even the angels that are in your immediate presence. We have more cause than they to sing. We can sing of your glory. We can rightly worship in all the ways and means whereby glory should be given to you. But we have another work, another wonder that belongs to us the wonder of saving sovereign grace. So help us today to have that song much, much upon our hearts. Help us as we open your word together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Commentators are divided as to whether the doxology of these closing verses of Romans 11 belongs to the whole of the book thus far, to the discussion in chapters 9 to 11 that we've been giving our attention to the last three Lord's Days, or some even simply as a response to what is affirmed in that 32nd verse where we began our reading together. Well, to each of these, my response is yes. <laughs> but... If forced to cast a vote, as it were, the fact that these, so, these words so clearly bring the doctrinal section of the epistle to its close and introduce or precede that obvious transition in chapter 12 to the practical outworkings of the gospel, uh, I'm inclined to cast my vote alongside those that see these as a response to everything that has come before them in Romans as the whole epistle. And what is... Here, the response. The response of a believing heart to what has been unfolded in this straightforward, dare we say, systematic statement of the gospel is a response, it is the response of worship. Worship is at the heart of the simple faith of the youngest believer. 
worship is at the heart of the meditations and the instructions of, instructions of the inspired apostle. And worship will be at the heart of the glorified church for all eternity to come. And so it is no wonder that at the conclusion of this setting forth, this proclamation, this answering of the questions and objections that might surround the gospel of grace, that we find a doxology of praise whereupon our hearts are filled with worship as we reflect upon what God has done. I want as we approach these words of doxology, and we should just say that it is, I believe, clearly a doxology that we read and that we find here. But to go back over what we've seen over these last months in Romans itself, and so I want to take uh, a very quick guided tour, but I want to turn to some of the key portions that we've read and considered along the way. So if you look back to the first chapter together with me, Paul, as he introduced himself to the Romans, a servant of Jesus Christ, separated unto the gospel of God, he begins and gives some words of definition with regard to that gospel. We read in the second verse of the epistle, which he'd promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This gospel, this good news that Paul is unfolding and explaining to the Roman believers in this newfound New Testament church in the capital of the world, is not some new idea. It's not some scheme that this renegade from Judaism has thought up and wants to just spread around to promote his own popularity and secure an office for himself. This is what God has promised from the beginning. This gospel of God, this single gospel, from the very first promise of that gospel to our fallen parents in Genesis 3, all the way through the whole of the history of this world. And he finds its focus, its fulfillment in his son Jesus Christ. And he emphasizes there, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. David, that nation even of which he stems, is going to figure pretty prominently as we see in the explanation of truth here. The formation of that nation was just in response. It was in an outworking of God's promise to send this specific second man, the Lord Jesus. And so this gospel, I say, focuses and is fulfilled in the person of Christ alone. If we skip down to the 16th and 17th verses of this opening chapter, we've seen his thesis statement. Again, Paul's making no mystery about what he's going to talk about, what he's presenting to the Romans. And he says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Just pause even there. The ways that Paul would have had shame heaped upon him by his countrymen. The ways in which the Greek and Roman worlds would have looked with scorn and shame upon what this man had to say. The seed picker he's called in Athens, you recall. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. For it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone believe it, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written. The just, people that are saved, people that are counted righteous, people that are accepted before God, the just shall live 
by faith. This is a gospel of faith from beginning to end. This is the truth that Paul is proclaiming. And in the 18th verse of our chapter, we see again the great opening argument of this epistle. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold or who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This good news of salvation obviously has something that precedes it. The need of salvation. What condition are we found in before God? And Paul begins to labor here from the very revelation that is seen with our eyes, the stars of heaven, the earth itself, things of His eternal power and Godhead that are clearly seen, being made manifest all around us so that men are without excuse. You come even to the second chapter as he begins to unfold this truth with regard to the Jews in particular who received more than just this natural revelation shining in creation, but received the inscripturated word. And so he argues in these opening chapters, as we've said, this revelation of wrath. If you flip over to the third chapter, he brings this to a conclusion. We read from verse 9 and verse 10 here. What, are we, what then are we better than they? No one no wise, for we've before proved both Jews and Gentiles, they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. The conclusion of this revelation of wrath, this fallen condition and need of sinful men, is that Jew and Gentile alike, each are recipients of revelation. Each are recipients of the law of God. Even these Gentiles who didn't have the Scriptures, he said, they show the work of the law written in their hearts. They know that they are creatures of the holy and sovereign God. They know that they are guilty before Him because of the sin that dwells within them. And the conclusion then, as we skip over then to verse 19, we know that whatsoever things the law says, he's proved Jews and Gentiles alike are under the law. It said to them that are under the law that what every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Do you want to know the difference between someone who agrees, gives assent to what God's Word says of him and one who doesn't? If we understand our condition before God, we're brought by His Spirit to affirm the truth of our own depravity, our own sinfulness, our own deserving of eternal judgment, our own inability to do anything in ourselves to remedy our situation. Our mouths are stopped. There's no excuse for ourselves that we can render to God. There's no means we have of saying, Lord, that I, I get it, but I'll make up for it. No, our mouths are stopped. It's still the unbelieving heart that wants to give some answer to God. Give some remedy for self before God. And so the conclusion is telling. It is hopeless if we're left to ourselves. But then there's another revelation. 
Verse 21 gives answer to that revelation of wrath from chapter 1 till verse 20 of our third chapter. But now we read verse 21, the righteousness of God without the laws manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. Here is the revelation of righteousness. Here is a revelation of the answer to this need of man. And we've talked, we've commented along the way subsequent to it, this, the paragraph. This fleshing out of what was put in a sentence, thesis form in chapter 1, that gospel of which Paul is not ashamed, is now fleshed out. Being, verse 4, justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Freely. No exchange is made. No payment. Some even translate freely in this instance without a cause. Justified without any cause that is in us. The cause being all in God. And verse 25 doesn't stoop to bring us to something of a difficult word. And yet a word with clear meaning. This Jesus whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation. A removal of wrath. That wrath that is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The Gospel. The good news of what God has done for sinners, for believing sinners in Jesus, is that this wrath is removed. Beyond the mere removal of wrath, if we could even speak that way, merely God's eternal wrath being removed. But a right standing, a righteousness is granted in its place. whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness, that He might be just, and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. In the Gospel Paul is preaching, and the Gospel God promised from the beginning of the ages, righteousness is granted to believers in Jesus. Conclusion of this, verse 27. We paused. I trust you took note of our pause. Another message following the message on the paragraph. Where is boasting? Where is boasting? It's excluded. We don't glory at all in self. We can borrow another phrase from Paul in Galatians. There is a one place we glory. God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The glory in His work for sinners, not sinners' work for Him. And this revelation of righteousness excludes boasting. And then we saw as He begins to flesh out the paragraph in the chapters that follow that chapter 4 just underscores again from the thesis, from faith to faith. And He shows us Abraham as that example of the believer in Scripture. 
And then the thought comes up so obviously, well, Abraham, the, the father of the Jewish nation, the one to whom the, the sign of circumcision was given. Paul says, yes. When did Abraham receive that sign? Before as a means to becoming right with God? Or did he not receive it after he was by faith alone already made right with God? And given that sign, just as we would have such signs in the New Testament Scriptures ourselves. Chapter 4, emphasizing by faith. Chapter 5, that chapter I so begrudgingly gave in to the multitude of commentators to say the paragraph of chapter 3 was indeed more significant. But if chapter 3 in the paragraph tells us again the what of the Gospel, chapter 5 gives us the how. It's by imputation. It's by Christ from both directions taking our place. Wrath is removed from us because it's placed on Him. Righteousness is reckoned to us because it's taken from Him, which He merited, which He worked out in our flesh. And that giant text, for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, even so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. It is chapter 4 by faith. It is chapter 5 by imputation. Chapter 6, this gospel is not an antinomian gospel. Chapter 7, this gospel is not a legal gospel. Chapter 8, no, this gospel is applied to believers by the precious workings of the Spirit of God. Here's where we see bringing together the accomplishment of redemption in Christ and the application of redemption by the Spirit. Here's where we found brought together that work that is done by Christ and Christ alone for us. The work that is by the Spirit wrought in us has changed believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, chapters 9-11, to he deals as he's done throughout with questions that would arise from his teaching and that extended question of, well, if God's sovereign election and grace are the surety and assurance of all of his believing people, chapter 8, what about Israel? Didn't he elect them? And of course, he's unfolded those truths, those gospel truths, those truths we still anticipate in the history of redemption that God is not slack concerning His promise. The gifts and calling of God are without repentance. God doesn't change His mind about stuff He's covenanted with. And Paul, having unfolded these glorious Gospel truths, then brings us to this doxology of praise. Oh, verse 33 of our 11th chapter again. Oh, the depth of the rich, both of wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been His counselor? Who hath first given to Him and it shall be recompensed unto Him again? For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. I want to come as we examine this doxology in the moments that remain today. We find within it that it can easily be broken down into three simple sections. 
Verse 33 is an emphatic ascription of wonder when considering the unsearchable ways of God. Verses 34 and 35, in these verses we find three rhetorical questions which, which almost flesh out the response to the paragraph in chapter 3. Where's boasting? And then verse 36 is an almost hymn-like poetic conclusion of praise. I give you three simple statements or outlines for the portions of the doxology. These are not original. I found them in various ways and almost similar expressions in more than one place along the way. Verse 33, that opening part of the doxology speaks of the greatness of God. Verses 34 and 35 where we find those rhetorical questions speaks to us of the grace of God. And verse 36 where we'll find three uh, very pointed prepositional phrases. It speaks to us of the glory of God. So first in the doxology, the greatness of God. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Commentators wrestle through here with giving enumeration to what's put before us. Oh, the depth. Depth would describe the and emphasize the seriousness, the overwhelming uh, presence of something. But is it two somethings or three? Is it the depth of God's riches and of His wisdom and of His knowledge? Or is it two things? Is it the depth of the riches of both His wisdom and knowledge? I have to cast my lot in with those that see two here. The depths of the riches is just a statement of emphasis. Riches is of a different quality than wisdom and knowledge. Paul is here as we find so often in Scripture struggling for vocabulary. You know, there were sometimes writers of Scripture under the inspiration of the Spirit invented new words because there was truth that was bigger than words that already existed. Well, Paul's not inventing words here. But think again of the, the seriousness, the, the, the wonder, the insufficiency of the words when he has to speak doubling of the depth of the riches, inexhaustible supply of the inexhaustible supply. God has wisdom and knowledge, unsearchable ways past finding out. One commentator wrestling with what a previous commentator had said, I looked at them both, <coughs> said that it is indeed quite interesting that what Paul is emphasizing here leans toward stuff we don't know uh, more than what we do know. It's unsearchable. It's past finding out. And yet I don't think the emphasis really is there. The emphasis here is what we find elsewhere in Scriptures is actually a word we found in chapter 11 we didn't pause to emphasize last week, but this mystery about the future blessing of Israel. Uh, if it's just that elect individuals that are part of that nation are ultimately going to be saved, it doesn't really flesh out what Scripture does when it speaks about a mystery. 
Mysteries aren't things that are hidden and, 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 and can never be known. A mystery in Scripture is something that we would not know unless God made it known, unless God revealed it to us. And so I invite you to turn with me for a moment over to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I want to read a section here that, well, you'll find some tremendous similarities, particularly in the close of these verses, where Paul unfolds something of this mystery. Read with me verse 7 from 1 Corinthians 2 and then down to the end of the chapter. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of the world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. But God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. Let me just pause. We've highlighted this more than one time along the way here. It's a text that's often quoted with regard to thinking of those that are dead in Christ or thinking about our future inheritance and glory. I hasn't seen nor heard or entered into the heart of man. We can't imagine all the good stuff that's waiting for us in heaven. And of course, that's true. It's a sentiment that reflects gospel truth. But it's not what Paul is talking about here. What he's talking about here, eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man. He's previously dealt with in 1 Corinthians. The world by wisdom knew not God. All these Greek philosophers, all the Roman Stoics and Epicureans, they can't figure it out. They're wrestling with the meaning of life. They get little pieces of truth, but the whole picture eludes them. It has to be revealed to us by the Spirit of God. There's something unsearchable, something past mere human thought finding out in this Gospel of grace. So we read again, starting in verse 10, but God hath revealed them unto us by Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of man, save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now we've received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. For the foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they're spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? That he may instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. Obviously Paul's barking up the same tree, if you will, of our 11th chapter and its doxology. Knowing something of the mind of God. This unsearchable mind. The wisdom and knowledge. You think even of the multiplication of those two terms. 
Knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge in itself to be sure. Wisdom to purpose and to work out the plan. But what does he add to these things? His judgments and his ways back in our text. How unsearchable are his judgments, his ways past finding out. Commentators wrestle a lot with the word judgments because it's used here. It's a term that has reference to the legal setting. It is often used in the context of a negative verdict, a judgment coming upon one who deserves punishment. But of course, innocent verdicts, not guilty verdicts, are part of judgments as well. It is not some condemnation that Paul has in view here. But the judgment of God, how God can be just and still justify sinners. That's what He's been unfolding in the person and work of Jesus. The fallen heart of man would not have figured this out. The fallen heart of man would not have put it that way. The fallen heart of man still tries to work it the other way. That the sinner can somehow make up for himself. That the sinner can perform something whereby he might feel better about himself. And then go and present himself, this new man to God. But the Gospel doesn't leave us there. It doesn't push us in that direction at all. The Gospel stops our mind until it brings us to the truth as it is in Jesus. And then our mouths are open, not in boasting. Praise the greatness of God. You think of the wisdom of the history of redemption. How God, as we read in one place, magnified His law and made it honorable. How God, as we've read in This epistle itself, do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid we establish the law. This is God's means of honoring His law. How can His law be honored if He said, sin against this law and perish forever? And somehow people that did that very thing don't perish forever. No, this is not human wisdom. This is the working of God. But think of the greatness of God in all things. And of course, all things in history are just working toward the goal of history, which is the redemption of the church. We, I almost slipped into an anachronism. We pick up the paper every day. What is that? We read the news. We hear the news. Whatever. You think of the politics of our nation. You think of the little pieces of truth that filter through the media without spin and agendas and all the above. And then multiply that by, I don't know, Kevin, how many countries are there in the world? I forget, but Kevin knows, I'm sure. Multiply that politics a few hundred times anyway. God raises up pharaohs and puts them down. 
his eyes on the sparrow. He controls the orbits of the planets and the comets and the galaxies and all the other stuff perhaps our best telescopes haven't even seen yet. Our God can be trusted. He can be trusted with all the stuff we can't figure out how it's going to work out. For some reason, a date from a long time ago popped in my head as I was just thinking through even these thoughts. Was it 509 B.C.? The last Etruscan king was dethroned and Rome was founded and five centuries later, through their cruel means of execution in the place of God's choosing, the promised seed of the woman would pay for the sins of His people on a Roman cross. I'm sure the dividing Pharisees and Sadducees and perplexed Jews of the intertestamental period spent a lot of intellectual horsepower trying to figure out what was going on in God letting the Romans take over the world just as they wrestled with the Greeks and the Medo-Persians and the Babylonians before them. God was working His plan. And God's working His plan today. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. The greatness of God. But verses 34 and 35, I say, speak to us of the grace of God. These rhetorical questions don't immediately jump out to us and, well, present us with something like the paragraph in chapter 3 with regard to grace. Yet there's grace all over them. I don't think the many that have used this outline of the doxology are just stooping as an accommodation to alliteration. Grace is here because as we read the questions, who has known the mind of the Lord? The obvious emphatic response is no one. Who's been His counselor? The obvious emphatic response is no one. Who has given something to Him expecting God to repay? The obvious emphatic response is no one. Paul's drawing from several Old Testament portions here, most notably Isaiah chapter 40. Who can know this? Who is God's counselor? Who's known the mind of the Lord? You ever ponder in Corinthians where Paul's wrestling with all the Greek philosophers and the wisdom of the world? And Paul uses that amazing phrase that the foolishness of God is wiser than men. It's obviously overstatement for emphasis because there's, there's no foolishness in God at all. But the point is, is take man's wisdom 
as far as it can possibly be stretched. And God's foolishness, if there could or ever would be any, would be greater, more wise than that. And who's been His counselor? You know, that implies an inferiority-superiority relationship. I mean, even in the case of kings or military leaders or democratically elected governors and rulers. A counselor is someone you lean upon who may know more about something than you do. you got to make a decision about some third world country where there's a problem. Do we get involved or not? I don't know. Where's the country on the map? What's it like? What's its history? And a counselor that can fill in some gaps in my knowledge. Who is a counselor to God? Who knows the end from the beginning? Who has, as part of His eternal decree, purposed everything everything that comes to pass from eternity he was mindful of the sparrow that fell somewhere today no one is his counselor and who is given to him who has made God his debtor Here's a very practical outworking of that response to the paragraph in chapter 3. Where's boasting? It's excluded. God is not our debtor. We are indebted to Him. We owe a debt we can't pay. He is in wisdom and grace paid through His own Son, the debt we owed. He is in His own wisdom and grace through His Son merited the life that we could never merit. And He has granted that to us freely. Granted that to us without any cause in ourselves. Merely that He chose that He desired to do so. God isn't any man's debtor. All of this gospel is a gospel of grace. I paused more than once along the way. I think I shared with you that I mentioned this in my unscheduled brief devotional to the ministers on the Friday morning of the week of prayer. The position that we find Paul in as he introduces this book of Romans, he says, I'm a debtor. He's certainly a debtor to God for the gift, but yet he's a debt that cannot be paid and there should be no attempts to pay. It's just an insult to the magnitude of the problem to suggest we can pay God back. It's an insult to the infinite worth and magnitude of the work of Christ to suggest we can work off that debt. But to view ourselves as debtors to mercy alone as we sing. And not 
so merely as that hymn would put before us to our sovereign, gracious God. But debtors to our neighbors, debtors to the sinners of this world, the Greeks and the barbarians, the wise and the unwise. That's a gospel response. And I think sometimes when our hearts, even hearts where we have to bring truth, even as the prophets at times have to stand up, show my people their transgressions, the prophet is charged. We don't do so as worthy. We don't do so as judges in ourselves. We do so among fellow sinners. This is a gospel that is all of grace. All of these questions are humbling. Who can in any way answer or hold God accountable? Nobody. But the last section of the doxology brings us to the glory of God. Verse 36, For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Three prepositional phrases Rapid fire. Some have through the history of the church sought to find uh, reference or application at least to the Trinity in these three phrases. I have to agree with the multitude of solid commentators that this is foreign to the context here. Uh, particularly, there's, there's nothing in here we could single out that would belong specifically to the Spirit And there's a stretch even to try and single out things to the Father and to the Son. It's to the triune God that this ascription of glory is given. But if we look at the phrases of Him, through Him, and to Him, He is the Creator of all things. Of Him. He is the Sustainer of all things. Through Him. Here's the possessor of all things. To Him. Some suggest goal rather than possessor. Some suggest heir. Quibbling over nuances there. But the glory of God of Him. Of Him are all things. He is the Creator. The implications here are vast. There is an indebtedness that the creature has to the Creator. Even in an unfallen state, the creature didn't merit creation. The infinite, eternal God doesn't say, look, there's a creature that I haven't created yet that deserves to be created. He purposed to do it. But in that all things are of Him. He has created all things. He is therefore sovereign. He therefore has the divine prerogative of defining right and wrong for His creation. Our obligation to Him is axiomatic. 
All things are of Him. All things are through Him. When we think of God as the sustainer of all things, I tried to put this to the man in the recent seminary class. History. We look at and speak of the history of redemption. The history of redemption, the outworking of God's purpose to save a people that were given to Christ before the foundation of the world, that's what history is all about. You know, the rise and fall of all these kings along the way in these different countries and empires and all these pieces of what we have to study and memorize maybe and forget in our... Do they still teach history anymore? In our classes, these are just the attending circumstances of the story that God's calling out of this race a people to Himself. And the fact that the earth, the fact that our first parents weren't immediately cast into the hell they deserved is part of God's purpose of redemption in sustaining this fallen earth until the last one of those given unto Christ is brought into the kingdom through Him and to Him. Possessor of all things. Heir, goal of all things. Final glory. I'm a firm believer in looking at God's purpose for man the place of man in his creation. I think it has implications for our understanding of the fall of Satan. I think it has implications for our understanding of the future eternal state. Man is the part of creation that was God's image bearer. Man was to be ruler, God's regent, over the rest of his created order. That's why when man fell, the curse came upon that which man was to govern. And I say I'm a believer then in the place we read in Hebrews 2, the culmination of that 8th Psalm. We see not yet all things put under man, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. And we are familiar with the truth there. But even in that ultimate glorification of Believing humanity in Christ. That position that Satan was so envious of that he sought to slay the ones that were to have this position instead of him. We are but the focal point of the reflection of God's glory. All glory. Ultimately, is due to Him. And here Paul, marveling in this glorious, wise, powerful Gospel that he is so, can we say, enjoyed setting forth before the gaze of the Roman believers. He says of Him, 
and through Him and to Him are all things. To whom be glory forever. And He anticipates the response to a doxology in the hearts of all believers. Amen. Are these words just to reflect on verse 32? Well, I think verse 32 can go all the way back to the opening arguments of the book. Are they to reflect on the glorious truth of God's faithfulness that is wrestled with and hammered out in chapters 9 to 11? Certainly. But I say, I read in these words closing out this systematic statement of the gospel a hearty amen, a pause of worship in the believing heart to the truth, that unsearchable truth that God has been pleased to reveal of His love and His purpose for us in the Gospel of the Son. That is something that is worthy of our eternal praise. Let us with Paul render glory to our God. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we come and ask that we might in the brevity of these four verses find great occasion the privacy of our own hearts and in the company of fellow saints to bring glory to our thrice holy God. You are no man's debtor. We have nothing in our hands to bring. We simply cling to Christ. We simply step out on the promise and rejoice and bear testimony to our glorious, infinite God. Prosper Your Word. Lord, prosper the meditations upon it over these last months. And Lord, give us grace as we look forward to the application, the very practical outworking of this glorious, lofty truth in the day-to-day lives of believers here below. So grant us that needed grace we ask. And part us now, Lord, with rich blessing we pray in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.